0: Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and bestselling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's episode, we're discussing what's been described as a quote stalemate between the federal and Ontario governments and automaker Stellantis over the generosity of public subsidies and the questions it raises about the limits of effectively subsidizing electric vehicle industry in Canada. We'll also cover a high-profile conference this week hosted by the Century Initiative, an influential nonprofit group dedicated to the goal of boosting Canada's total population to 100 million by the end of this century. Amanda, thanks for joining us for another conversation. Great to be here. Let's start with the conflict between the Ottawa and the Ontario government and automaker Stellantis, which has apparently halted construction on a new battery production plant in Windsor, Ontario, because the company believes that the governments need to step up more after announcing $13 billion for Volkswagen a few weeks ago. This is an extraordinary case of open subsidy bargaining. Usually it happens behind closed doors. What do you make of it?
2: Well, first of all, I'm fascinated at the uh, the framing of this as which government owes the money. That's genius. And I don't know whether we can thank the feds for landing us there or whether it's DeLantis's, uh positioning. Essentially, you know, we've skipped right over the question of whether there should be more and we've gone to who's going to pay it. Let's just rewind a little bit. Why is there more? Uh, And, you know, I I must say, Sean, I was reminded of that old, uh, you know, that old saw. We've established what you are, madam. Now we're just negotiating price. Uh, We, uh, the government, the federal government is over a barrel here because they've established what they are. And Stellantis is not stupid. Uh, And being not stupid and a a business, uh, they see money and why wouldn't they? It's actually uh, their duty to go get it if they can. So here we are. But I find it fascinating, don't you? I mean, it's one thing to say which government should pay, but I think we've skipped a step here.
1: Yeah. So that point, the federal government's main message here seems to be that the original subsidies dedicated to Solantis were negotiated before the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. and Ottawa's decision to broadly match. Public subsidies, and in that sense, I suppose Atlantis has something of an argument. But as you say, Amanda, it speaks to how unsustainable it is for Canadian governments to pay everyone tens of billions of dollars. Is this the risk of trying to keep up with the Americans and others on public subsidies for electric vehicles and other industries? Are we in effect stuck in a, a, something of a race to the bottom?
2: I think so, and I mean, I think it's an interesting argument. Um, and you, you know, you can, again, I'll say. I don't blame Stellantis. I see why they would make it. There is some intestinal fortitude that a government could bring to this to say, look, the situation changed, but we have a deal. And your deal was, you know, you can't say, oh, my neighbor just sold his house for twice what I sold mine five years ago. I'm going to go back to the buyer and ask for more money. The contract's a contract. The timing matters. The IRA didn't exist when Stellantis thought this was a good deal. So to me, I, I think you're raising the most important point, which is, again, Um, It was to me surprising as somebody who's been inside government. I'd like your insight on this because we did have our industry minister uh, trumpeting the the Volkswagen deal, proudly talking about, you know, the uh, the undertakings and what this will mean. And again, we just really didn't have any of the kind of debate or even response or pushback on 13 billion. Like, let's not lose sight of the the B there—that's a big amount of money, even over ten years, and we don't know what we're going to get for it. We don't know where EV fits into the the overall picture here. Uh, that's a long time. In ten years, we could be all on jets and like flying vehicles. I don't know. Um, so it just seems to me that we did skip this debate. Are we are we giving up on debate here? We're just going for this, and the government can do what it wants.
1: Oh, uh, just a ton of insight there, Amanda. So many things to unpack. Let me just start with your emphasis on the magnitude of subsidies for Volkswagen. As you say, I I think it's easy to forget how significant it is and how disproportionate it is relative to other instances of call it public subsidies, call it corporate welfare, whatever you want. But this is a really kind of unprecedented level of public investment. Think about it this way, Amanda. According to reporting, Volkswagen intends to invest $7 billion in this plant, which means that public subsidies are something approaching two to one. In the case of Solantis, we don't have all of the facts because in the name of confidentiality and market moving information and so on. But there's reason to believe that the public subsidies represented something like a billion dollars and the company was putting in five of its own. And so this case only emphasizes your point that what we're doing with Volkswagen is something so different than we've seen in the past that it was bound to create these kind of pressures and, and tensions with others just one other proof point along these lines i looked into it last night this year canada's entire defense budget will be something like 26 27 billion dollars so the canadian government with the ontario government has essentially decided to give to a single company something approaching half of our annual defense budget and you know at the time It seemed obvious that it was unsustainable, and I think what Stellantis is doing here is effectively calling the government's bluff. And the result is they're now pointing fingers at one another on who's going to close the extraordinary gap between the subsidies in these two particular cases.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important uh, to remember as citizens that yes, we our government can make decisions. That's why we have elected officials and political platforms. So uh, perhaps this investment will, this government will tilt towards, you know, targeted investments in transforming our economy and not in defense. Despite our uh, obligations to our NATO allies, we'll you know leave that aside. We'll continue to be the bad citizens we've been on that file. Um, Nothing new there. I I guess I would just say. we do seem to be kind of losing a little bit of that, uh, the sense of the why, um, and the debate, if you will, about whether this is actually the right approach. And I'm disappointed because I, I think we had a kind of a policy, uh, direction from this particular government that was really about creating frameworks. And they were pretty serious frameworks, right? Canada kind of got out in front of carbon taxes. Um, we even had, you know, provinces creating agreements for cap and trade systems long before many of our major trading partners were thinking this way. Those are the kinds of frameworks that can really force businesses to up their game and figure things out and move quickly and make it make them incentivized to to do the work for us. And we've shifted completely. And now with the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, it feels like just kind of we're all in on we're going to pick the winners. We're going to pick the direction. Uh, and we just don't have enough people saying, like, why hydrogen? You know, I don't, I still don't really understand why we think hydrogen uh, is the way to go. I certainly wonder about carbon capture and storage. I've yet to see anybody really prove it out at scale. Um, but you know that's we, we, everybody's kind of says, okay, our government's going to spend on this I, I kind of reject that I want us, I want us to keep being kind of whiny about it and say no let's keep asking the why here because it does matter and these are long-term investments so it's important pick yeah,
1: up that point Amanda you know it seems to me implicit in these two cases of public subsidies is the notion that a lot of climate related investment isn't necessarily driven by market forces. And so if we want progress, particularly on the timelines envisioned, in different government targets, it's going to require some combination of subsidies, loan guarantees, tax credits, and and so on. What do you hear from the investment and business community on these issues? Is there optimism about the goal of net zero or do investors and businesses see it in defensive terms as much as, say, new sources of growth and value?
2: So it's been interesting, right? Because we have seen, I think, a real shift in the last few years. It does make a difference. To have uh, the U.S., you know, the weight of Congress with real dollars actually focusing on this and saying we're creating a framework. It may not be the right framework, and it it may take us down bad paths. But it's at least a framework that actually businesses kind of you could sort of almost feel the palpable relief from big companies saying, okay, so now we have something to work with because it's been you know sort of almost a decade of something might be coming, but we don't know what and we don't know when and we don't know what to do about it. Canada could really play in this, and I'll go back to you know, we were, I think we were on the right track uh, and we could have actually shown leadership on things like carbon taxes. Uh, the idea that you'll, you will designate some emissions worse than others to me is just a, a mistake. We should just say that, you know, an emission is an emission and whether it's from your barbecue uh, or an oil and gas uh, plant, that's the same, you know, it's the same value to us and let's sort that out and let businesses go. So my concern is businesses, I think, feel relieved and they will invest but it's still not necessarily going to be with the right outcome. Because we know if if we create a framework for a goal, and I always go back to, it's such an old example, I wish there was a newer one, but the acid rain uh, debate uh, around the Great Lakes and how businesses uh, you know, complained mightily that they'd be put out of business if they had to change their, and of course, none of them did. And they actually moved fairly quickly once a real cap was put in place. Uh, you can do the same, you can do it anytime. There are many things that businesses won't do on their own, and we do need to regulate into existence but actually directing their affairs and where they're going to invest, that feels really dicey to me.
1: For a long time, of course, the case for the carbon tax was it was the most efficient means to reduce emissions precisely because it decentralized decisions about where the most efficient emissions reductions ought to occur, what types of technologies were most efficient in terms of reducing emissions. And yet today, I've seen estimates, Amanda, that when you look at Canada's projected emissions reductions between, say, the present and 2030, the carbon tax is only doing about one third of the work. In other words, this growing panoply of tax credits and subsidies and so on are now the majority of the source of progress. And it seems to me in the aftermath of the IRA, that breakdown between the carbon tax and some of these more interventionist top-down measures is bound to change even further. What do you think's behind that, Amanda? Is it, in effect, a kind of political economy judgment on the part of policymakers that Canadians and Canadian businesses aren't prepared to live with a higher and faster rising carbon tax? Or is it, in a way, a kind of basic acceptance that the Americans are doing this, and so we have no choice but to effectively do the same?
2: I suspect it's the former. I mean, I I mean, obviously, there's a lot of political cover and you see that in the talking points that we have to respond to the IRA. Um, You know, you're raising kids. Uh, How many times you say to your kid just because somebody else is doing it doesn't mean it's what we're going to do. So leaving aside the the kind of infantile nature of that response, uh, I do think. Selling to Canadians, uh, and, you know, I've always hated that they lost the battle for it to be called a tax, but there it is. We'll call it a tax because that's where we, we, we live with it. Uh, but now having to sort of justify that things will become more expensive, instead of actually just... Accepting the complexity of this, of course, things will become more expensive. Of course, if we have an emergency and we need to reduce something, making it pricier is the best way. And people are adults and people can do less of things. And we just we just refuse to. I mean, I was actually contemplating this recently. You know, you'll you'll know that when they brought in the US, when they brought in the cafe standards, the fuel emission standards um, and made cars more fuel efficient. Almost in lockstep, the cars got bigger. In other words, they, because you could get sort of more, more cleaner burning fuel, I can now drive a monster SUV uh, for the same emission rate, instead of saying, we're going to take that sort of and put it towards our, our carbon deficit. Uh, and we do the same thing. Now we're saying we're not going to reduce how we drive, heaven forbid. We're not going to change anything about how we consume electricity or all of the many things that we're frivolous about. We're just going to green it up. Uh, as though that's the the right and it, uh, the whole kind of reduction of consumption and thinking about waste and all that stuff that really was the the was in the like the dawn of the environmental movement just gone, and I think we need to bring some of that back. We need to bring back kind of the notions that people can handle complex information and they can handle that this is hard and it might be you know things might get lost along the way. But rather than the government shutting down the oil and gas industry, let the oil and gas industry shut down itself. It was headed that way. It was headed that way, right? Remember in 2020, the major oil and gas players said, we're shutting in production because they could see the writing on the wall. And now, wow, all it took was sort of one pandemic and everybody said, no, no, we need the oil and that's over. And now we're back to pumping as much as we can. Um, There are ways to get businesses to do this on their own.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now, back to our program.
1: If I can just make two points before we move on to another subject. The first is on your point, Amanda, about the kind of small p politics of carbon taxation and the complexity and the political risks associated with it. I think one piece of the puzzle that is often underestimated is that as the carbon tax continues to rise, it is going to generate such significant revenue that there is the potential to really reconceptualize Canada's tax and transfer system. Just to put one idea on the table, for instance, and this is hardly the only idea or even necessarily the best one, but that at $150 per ton, we could effectively end personal income taxation in Canada to say nothing of, A combination of income tax reductions, corporate tax reductions, income support, particularly for low-income households. I guess the point is one idea that seems to have gone unaddressed in our politics is that a larger carbon tax actually enables us to think more ambitiously about the way we finance government, the way that we support individuals and businesses. And that piece of the puzzle has been neglected. And I wonder if a politician took that on. He or she might find greater resonance within the Canadian public. Like, I think the message that we're going to get rid of end of personal income taxes by the end of this decade, that's a big idea. That's a bold idea. And then just the second point I'd raise in response to some of the things you said about this now trend towards effectively having Ottawa decide how best to respond to climate change. I think the electric vehicle issue is such a good one. Presently, something like 9% or 10% of vehicles sold in Canada are electric vehicles. It is the government of Canada's policy that by 2035, 100% of new vehicles sold in this country will be electric vehicles. It just strikes me as a completely...
2: Well, green will be green, not necessarily electric. So they've left a loophole that it could be a different well, technology. Well, I'm not right? sure
1: about the Americans certainly have because the Americans have gone technology neutral. They've in effect said whatever gets you to certain emissions standard.
2: I think our government's also allowing for some hydrogen in the mix there or some kind of other potential fuel. We I mean, we can we can double check that, but I think the goal is 20 percent uh, clean fuel and it. But I think you and I will agree it's likely to be electric in this country because
1: it's the yeah, only one that really and I'll really just works. say we'll have an episode of Hub Dialogues coming out in a couple of weeks with Bruce Friedrich, who is a champion for plant-based and cell-based alternatives to meat, Amanda. And he makes a pretty compelling argument that if you were going to dedicate scarce resources on reducing emissions in our economy and society, drawing on pre-existing advantages that Canada has... There's a case that rather than trying to subsidize the creation of an electric vehicle industry in the country, we would actually be dedicating those resources to meat alternatives, that canola, soy, these are some of our major export commodities in the country and they have the potential to be major global leaders when it comes to... So I guess that's a very long way of saying, precisely to the point that you've made so far in this conversation, by edict, we're kind of choosing one path to emission reductions over others that may actually be more efficient and ultimately a greater source of value and opportunity for Canada's economy. Yeah,
2: so and I... I would actually say before you let we move on from this, because you were in there, you were inside the halls of power. So here's my question is, you know, I know the example that comes to my mind actually is vaccine manufacturing. We we became very alarmed that Canada has no vaccine manufacturing, no way to make our own. Um, and so then is the obvious answer to that, that we should manufacture vaccines? Maybe, but but surely along the way to getting to that answer, there are questions we have to ask that include why don't we have vaccine manufacturing? And in there may lie some other answers that take us to different places. And it may not be that we should manufacture our own, but that we should have other sources of supply or agreements or whatever it is. I worry these days. And you, this is where I want you to correct me, and I hope you. I mean, I hope inside, you know, PMO or at cabinet or caucus, whatever. People say, whoa, wait, wait, let's ask the other questions. Let's not just go from A to Z and say, let's make our own vaccines. Let's actually ask, why don't we have vaccines and back up from there? And I think the same thing could happen with EV and it could happen with all kinds, you know, this, the whole, uh, you know, critical minerals. It could happen with a bunch of things where we just ask the important questions. It's the most important yeah, thing we can could do. I couldn't agree
1: more. And I think what you find if you ask those questions, that oftentimes the main impediment to having those certain productive capacities within our country isn't even financing. It's not capital, it's things like intellectual property or regulations or access to other markets or or whatever. And so I think you're precisely right that you need to go through these types of decisions in a more nuanced way. And I'll I'll just say, maybe this is a subject for another one of our conversations. But even on the broader issue of reshoring, Amanda, like I, I think I'm open to the idea that greater vaccine production capacity within our borders is something of a strategic interest or national interest issue that requires governments to intervene in markets and effectively say, we're not going to defer to markets on this particular issue. It's too important for the country or whatever. What worries me is I think you could plausibly make that case for vaccines. I don't think you could make that case for, say, t-shirt production. And it's not clear to me that politics as a kind of framework to stay disciplined about making those types of judgments. And it seems to me, maybe to go full circle, a lot of what we've seen in recent weeks on electric vehicles is a sign that we're not using that kind of evidence-based or principle-based framework to make these calls. We're kind of jumping into the pool behind the Americans, and it's going to cost us a lot of money.
2: Agreed. If vaccines, then computer chips, and that takes us down a very bad Let's path. Let's pivot my to
1: the Century Initiatives conference this week, which is the subject of a must-read report by the Hub's editor in chief, Stuart Thompson. Amanda, as you know, and, and many listeners and viewers will know, the Century Initiative's goal of 100 million Canadians by 2100 has received a lot of attention lately, including comments from Quebec Premier Francois Legault, a series of articles and commentaries in the Journal de Montreal, and. And a recent Globe and Mail column by Andrew Coyne. Let's start with the obvious question. What do you think of the goal? Should we aim to reach 100 million of us by the end of the century?
2: Well, I mean, I would, I would actually just point you to Andrew Coyne's column on that one. Um, and it reminds me of a, of a club. And this is, a, I won't name it, but it's a real club that said, uh, you know, we want to raise our membership. If everybody brings in one new member, we'll double our membership. Um, you know, duh, the math just works. And what Coyne pointed out in his column is, you know, the rate that the rate of popular of immigration growth that gets us to 100 million in, in the target is not different than what we've already done. So creating a kind of a scary headline uh, figure around 100 million is just wrong. It's that's we probably will be 100 million. It's how compounding works. Uh, to me, the bigger question is because then you go to the kind of the rate. And questions of uh, assimilation and our infrastructure and you know, very practical matters. And um, I will I'm, I, I will read Stuart's report with deep interest because uh, you know this is a subject Canada 2020 has been pushing the Century Initiative. P- pardon me has been pushing uh, for a while, and you do see our immigration at very high levels. The only question I'll throw out there, and it's a question without an ad. Do not ha- I don't claim to have any insight into this. Uh, And that is for a long time, like decades, uh, you'll know when you're in government, we never hit our immigration targets. We had we had decent immigration targets and we didn't meet them. Uh, And so what are we doing differently? I guess I would ask. Uh, What have what have we changed about how we process people or our screen for people or canvas? I don't know. I'm curious about that. That's all. Um, Because it does matter in terms of the sheer number of people who come and then what happens to them uh because as we 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 know people people come to this country and then find it really hard um and unpleasant and uh, in some cases unlivable and so we should make sure that we're doing this in a way that is actually not just you know good economically for us and good for our long-term prospects which we can all agree it is but humane uh, and appropriate and uh, will actually work for the human beings involved yeah, in these transactions. there's
1: so much to say in response to those great insights. Just on the question of our immigration policy, it's worth observing, Amanda. This is a number that's often neglected in these types of conversations, is that there is our annual intake target for permanent residents. And as it's been reported in in various places over the past several months, the government has actually increased that target in the coming years to half a million. But the truth is, that's only one half of the equation. We have non-PR streams, including temporary foreign workers, student visas, etc., which actually push the annual number of immigrants in the country to something like a million one, a million two. And when you're thinking about our ability to integrate people in terms of infrastructure and services and housing and so on. In a way, it's the second number that matters as much as the first one. And so I think you're right to emphasize that the Century Initiative and others who are championing higher levels of immigration need to kind of go beyond immigration policy and concern themselves with a whole host of other policy matters if we're ultimately going to successfully integrate into our economy and society this higher rate of of immigration. The second thing I would just say that worries me a little bit is that I often say, Amanda, that Canada has achieved something unique amongst peer jurisdictions. We have relatively high levels of support for relatively high levels of immigration. And I do think that that's something we need to be cognizant of as we kind of pursue this experiment of higher immigration levels, especially since one thing that is often neglected is that immigration is not geographically distributed across the country. It is highly concentrated in a small number of places. You know, something like 75% of our annual immigration intake ends up in, you know, between three and five cities across the country. And so as the federal government is ramping up its ambition with respect to our annual target, there'll be a real need to work particularly with those communities. I'm thinking of Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Algary Edmonton, where municipal policymakers and municipal service delivery organizations are really at the front on the front lines of determining whether this experiment is ultimately successful. I have to ask you though, you know, you're close to the business community. How are they responding to these questions of immigration and higher levels of immigration, particularly against the backdrop of of something we've talked about on previous episodes, Canada's tight labor market?
2: I mean, on that front, of course, there's support um, and there are, you know, so things like uh, increasing the number of temporary foreign workers, lowering kind of the the criteria that allows you to bring them in. Uh, Businesses like that, they like the uh, those targeted abilities to bring in very specific types of workers. They've been doing that forever, but to make that easier uh, is obviously good for business. I would say, and I don't, and I think then you just get to, you know, businesses are, are all run by humans and there's a, then there's the human, um, question and evaluation. Uh, you, you, you raise some really important points and let me just say one of the great successes of Canada, of course, is I think you can say we're pro-immigrant, right? That's sort of the the general feeling is we all agree if not only because we all are that, uh, of, of some degree or other to one generation, two generations, whatever it is, we're all immigrants. Um, it doesn't mean to be pro-immigrant that you can't have conversations about what it means to have, a, to your point, a great many more people. And let's all here. Let me say this, and I feel like I need to be wearing a T-shirt that says I'm not a xenophobe, or in order to even have this conversation, which is terrible, right? You can't have the discourse because you're so afraid. But let me say, when you just look at the data of uh, non-economic, non-labor market-driven, non-international student-driven. Uh, of where we are sourcing immigrants, it's a couple of places, right? So um, Southeast Asia and the Middle East are very, that's the vast majority uh, of our pool of immigrants. So that's great. And in fact, we know from our own past experience that when there are large groups already settled somewhere, new groups assimilate faster. So it actually makes a lot of sense to reach into the same pool. It's very good, I think, for the, the, the pace of integration. But we might ask some other questions, right? What does it mean for somebody to come to Canada Uh, who, who, you know, especially, you you know, you could say, um, who, who doesn't have that like assimilated group here, who who, who we don't know. This, we're now talking about large enough numbers that I don't know what the motivations of folks are. Uh, we could, should ask those questions. What does it mean to be Canadian? What do we say to people? Here's what you have to sign up for. Is there anything? Do we have any? Is it just the charter? That may be enough. I, I might be okay with that. But should we have those kinds of conversations without allowing it to be a dog whistle to, Xenophobes and racists and bigotry. Uh, so that's a that's a tough line. I'm, I'm not going to deny that's not a tough line. But we, I don't think we have to be Pollyanna over here saying, you know, it's all good, everything's good. Uh, bring whatever culture you want, bring whatever laws you want. Uh, you know, we'll just accept it all and figure it out. Um, except that we will, because we're Canada. Uh, so I don't know. I, it's a, it's just one of those things where I, we have got to have the hard conversations. Again, I, I are they being had somewhere by Amen. somebody? I don't I'm know. I'm
1: glad to have these conversations with you, precisely because you're able to put big ideas like that on the table in a dispassionate principle-based way. I'm grateful for this conversation. Uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you for another one in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Amanda.
2: Always a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your audio online and leave us a review and rating. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor at large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's podcast producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation.